You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of life. Yes, physical life today, but also the promise of eternal life with you. As we begin this day, we ask that you would turn our minds and our hearts to you, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we may understand the things that we find in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, as we look at probably one of the most well-known stories found in the Gospels, and that is the woman at the well. John chapter 4. And we'll begin in verse number 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And verse 4 says that he must needs, or he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you look at a map of the Holy Land, Samaria does indeed lie between where Jesus was and Jerusalem. There was more than one way to get there for sure. And any good Jew in Jesus' time made sure that they found the other ways to get there. As you probably know, the Jews and the Samaritans were not exactly best of friends. And it had been this way for many, 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 many years. And by the time Jesus appears on the scene, the Jews and the Samaritans are enemies living next door, at least spiritually speaking. In order to really understand this story, we need to remind ourselves and review who are the Samaritans? How did they end up there? And why did this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, uh, where had it come from? We'll come back to John chapter 4 in just a moment, but turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. That's 2 Kings chapter 17. And in this chapter, we have the history of the Samaritans and Samaria. Chapter 17 of 2 Kings begins with Assyria capturing Samaria. This is the ten northern tribes as they fall. If you remember the history of Israel after the split between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes of Judah, the ten northern tribes just descend steadily further and further into apostasy and rebellion. Now Judah wasn't too far behind them, but Judah's history was kind of up and down like a roller coaster. Unfortunately, the ten northern tribes, there was no roller coaster. It was just that slip and slide straight down. And so 2 Kings 17 records the capture of Samaria and the dispersion of the ten northern tribes. We're going to jump to verse 24. Because the king of Assyria realizes after he has carted away most of the people in this region that he has a problem on his hands. He now has an empty territory. What is he going to do with it? So let's pick up the story in verse 24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and Kutha, and from Ava, and Hamath, and Sepharvim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, 
and they possessed Samaria and they dwelt in the cities thereof. So the solution that the king of Assyria comes up with to repopulate his conquered territory is to bring in people from lots of different places within his realm. And the first place mentioned is where? Babylon. Verse 25 goes on. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them which slew some of them. Therefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, they do not know the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Okay, so this is the mindset of these pagan people that have been transplanted back into the region of the ten northern tribes. And their mindset is this that there is a God for each little area that you might be, right? There is a God of Babylon, and there's a God of, what was another place, Ava, and there's a God of Sepharvaim, and there's a God of the trees, and a God of the mountains, and so forth. You get the idea. And when you live under this mindset, life becomes extremely difficult and taxing. Because you have to remember where you are. Because the rules change, right? The God of Babylon might have different rules than the God of the trees over here. And the God of the mountain might have different rules than the God of Ava over here. Can you imagine a more stressful and fearful way to live than trying to figure out what the rules might be today where the God is that you happen to be? This is the Babylonian mindset. Let's not forget that. Verse 27 goes on, the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry thither one of the priests whom you brought from there, and let them go and dwell there, and let them teach the manner of the God of the land. Not a bad idea, right? The king of Assyria says, let's go, let's get one of the Israelite priests, bring them back, and they can teach them about the God of the land. However, given what you know about the uh, faithfulness of the Israelite priests, at least in those ten northern tribes, was this going to be a successful plan? Probably not. Verse 28. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now, Bethel uh, was one of the two religious centers that Jeroboam had set up. Jeroboam was the first king of the ten northern tribes, and he was the one that was responsible for sending the ten northern tribes into this non-stop spiral into apostasy. He was the one that set up these golden calves, one in Bethel, the other in Dan, on the other, uh, northern end of the territory. And he did not want his people in the ten northern tribes going back down to Jerusalem to worship because he thought, the Bible says, if they go to Jerusalem, they'll eventually return uh, to the true worship of God and then I will lose my power and my kingdom. So he sets up false centers of worship, these golden calves. He goes further than that, in Bethel especially. Uh, he sets up a false priesthood, and then he sets up a false day of worship. And it's very fascinating uh, in Jeroboam's story. As he enters as king, he goes into his temple that he has set up. And as he is there, in a sense, combining the powers of church and state together, trying to offer sacrifices as king, there is a true prophet of God that shows up. And he reprimands him. And if you remember the story, Jeroboam stretches forth his hand 
to lay hold on the prophet, and what happens to the king's hand? It withers up. It's a type of the mark of the beast, right? The mark can be placed on the hand of the forehead. There's another king later on in Israel's history, actually Judah's history, that does the same mistake. As king, he goes into the temple, and when the priests confront him, and he's about to lay hold on the priests, he gets leprosy in the forehead. So mark on the hand of the forehead, combining the powers of church and state. This is the mindset and the thought process that has arisen in the land of Samaria. So we're in verse 29. Howbeit, every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities where they dwelt. The Bible's conclusion is found in verse 32. So they feared the Lord. Now is that a good thing? Should we fear God? To fear means to serve Him, right? To reverence Him. To recognize God's authority. If, the, if verse 32 stopped right there, that would be a good verse, but it goes on. They feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. Verse 33 says it again. They feared the Lord and served their own gods. See, this is the Babylonian mindset. It's a mixed worship, isn't it? There's a little bit of truth, but there's a lot of error mixed in. Do we live like Babylonians sometimes? We have to admit that we do. And this Babylonian mindset of serving this God this way, or God this way here, and God this way in this circumstance, we have to admit, has worked its way even into our lives today. How often do we act or speak differently, say, in church than we do in a different setting, at work? Or when we get home, we're a different person than we were out there. That's a Babylonian way of living. And it's just as stressful and fear-inducing today as it was in the past. It doesn't work. The Bible's final conclusion is found in verse 34. Unto this day they do after the former manners, they fear not the Lord. They had fooled themselves. They thought they were serving God. But God, of course, is not fooled. And so his final verdict is, they don't even fear me. They're just playing a game. And this, these are the roots of the Samaritan way of living life. Let's go back to John chapter 4. Jesus, the Bible tells us, must needs go through Samaria. You see, he had a divine appointment this day, didn't he? Because there was a woman that the Holy Spirit said, you need to meet. And the Holy Spirit is leading him. By the way, since we have a room full of Bible students this morning, what does a woman often represent in Bible prophecy? Ah, church. Is it possible that God will have a church at the end of time who is trying to serve Him or believes that they are, but in fact is caught up with a Babylonian way of thinking? Is that possible? Revelation says it's more than possible. Revelation says that will be the situation, and this is why God calls His people out of Babylon. John chapter 4, verse 5. 
Then cometh Jesus to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, names in the Bible are significant. You know this. They often represent character. And any time that you are studying really any passage in Scripture, take the time to dig into the meaning of names, whether it's a person's name or the name of a city. Now, I did a little research in preparation for this morning. Michigan. Anybody know what Michigan means? It means great water. And I don't have to tell you why. It's a good name for Michigan, right? You're surrounded by lots of great water. How about Detroit? It's French for straight. And uh, if you dig back in the history, it apparently refers to the Strait of the Lake of Erie. Huron, another French name. I like this one. It's a nickname for someone with a shaggy head of hair. I don't know how that translated to a big lake, but I'll leave that to you to research. And then Mackinac. Now, I have to admit, a couple days ago, I made reference to the Mackinac Bridge. And several of you have kindly corrected me. Thank you. So I'll make sure and say it correctly this morning. Mackinac. It means great turtle. So I don't know. I guess if you were in a canoe making your way toward the island, maybe it looks like a turtle shell out there. How about Sychar? Because this woman, who is a Samaritan, who has a divine appointment with Jesus this day, she lives in a town called Sychar. And if you look it up, Sychar means drunken. How would you like to put that on your postcard? Hi, I'm from the town of Drunken, Michigan. Don't miss what's going on. Here is a woman representing a church who lives in a city called Drunken in a land that worships like Babylon. Does Revelation say anything about the wine of Babylon at the end of time that will be so powerful and so delusive that even God's people will be at risk of being drunken with the wine of Babylon? You see, Jesus loves us. And He loves His people. He loves His church. And just like He had a divine appointment with this woman on this day, before He gets to Jerusalem, Jesus has a divine appointment with us and with you and with your family before He comes back. And He must pass through your life before He returns. And He's going to be calling us. He is calling us. Just like He calls this woman. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. His disciples were gone away unto the city to buy food. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that said unto thee, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus does this, doesn't he? He tends to 
interrupt us in our lives? Have you ever experienced this? Has God ever interrupted you in the round of your daily life? This day began like any other for this woman. She got up, got herself together, and somewhere around the middle of the day, she went to the well to get water. Typically, this was not the time of day that people would go to the well, right? It's hot. It's hard work drawing water out of the well. But if uh, we remember this woman's history, and we'll get to that, there was probably a reason why she was coming to this well in the middle of the day when nobody else would be there. She had had enough experience with people watching where she went and then whispering about it, right? And so she wanted to go when nobody else would come. But now here is this stranger and a Jew at that, and he is trying to engage her in conversation. He is interrupting her day. If God has ever <clears throat> interrupted your life before, He has mine. Your first reaction, my first reaction, is often to kind of respond as she did. Why are you doing this? What's the point? Let me get back to my plan, right? Jesus is trying to shift her focus to something of eternal reality. Let's keep reading. Verse 11. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And as Jesus talks about living water and eternal life, something starts to stir inside of this woman, right? And all of a sudden, she's not quite as annoyed at the interruption in her life. I shared with you a few mornings ago an experience where God interrupted my life. I'll briefly repeat that and go a little further in the story this morning. I had taught uh, music for seven years at one of our boarding academies out in Virginia. And um, after seven years of doing that, I was ready to go get my doctorate in music so I could teach at a college or university. This was my plan for my life, right? I had it all mapped out. And so, at the same time, I had just met um, Stacy, who had, we, we would get married a couple years later, and so I said, this is a great time to try to get closer to her. So I found a university, got accepted there, uh, University of Georgia. She was teaching first and second grade at one of our schools in Atlanta at the time. So that commute is about an hour from Athens to Atlanta. That's a lot better than Virginia down to Atlanta. And um, we had <clears throat> gotten married. This was 2008. And about two months after we got married, guest speaker came through our church for the weekend and made a call at the end of the weekend. If you feel the Lord calling you to full-time gospel ministry, come forward and join me on the stage. And all of a sudden, I found myself walking up to the front of the stage. God had just interrupted my life. <clears throat> 
praise God, my, my new bride was excited with me, and so we started praying through that entire school year. This was late in August. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed. Lord, show us what it is you want us to do. You know, we're willing to go be missionaries. We're off to China, maybe. What does he want us to do? And um, we prayed all the way through first semester, continued praying through second semester, no answer. Have you ever had that experience? You pray and you pray. Where is the answer? Maybe this woman had been praying for a change in her life. And maybe up to this point, <clears throat> there had been no answer. And maybe her faith was starting to question, <clears throat> is there a God? Excuse me. <clears throat> and does He care about me? Sometimes God seems to take us right to the end of the line, doesn't He? And He stretches that rope of faith until we're really ready to hear the answer. Verse 15, the woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus brings her to the place where she is now ready to listen to him. She recognizes her need that whoever this man is, he, he understands something, he has something that I need for myself, right? And so now she starts to open herself up. And she's basically saying, I'm willing, I'm ready to listen. I desire to have what you, 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 you apparently are ready to offer me. But look at what Jesus does next. Verse 16. Jesus said unto her, Go and call thy husband and bring him here. And this was the one place in her life that the woman hoped nobody would ever go. Now, why does Jesus ask for her to bring her husband? We know her answer. Verse 17, she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, You have well said, I have no husband. You have had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. You have spoken truly. Why does Jesus say, Bring your husband? Why does he say, Before I can give you living water? before I can transform your life. Go bring your husband. Why does he ask for this thing in her life? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll come back to John 4 in just a moment. There is a very specific reason that Jesus asks her to bring her husband. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is writing, and he's using the analogy of marriage to describe the relationship between Jesus and his people. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we read this, Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Of course, husbands are called to love and protect and cherish their wives. But for our story to this morning, the spiritual message is that the wife is to submit to her husband. And what Jesus is asking this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman, this drunken woman living in Babylon, he is telling her, before I can set you free and give you living water, 
you must be willing to bring to me whatever it is that you are submitted to. Whatever it is that controls you. You see, Jesus wasn't just saying, go and bring your husband. This woman had had an issue with this subject, hadn't she? She had had five husbands. And the man she was with now wasn't even a marriage. This aspect of her life was controlling her. She had no power over it. You know, if she had had the kind of, of loving, faithful marriage that God intended, Jesus probably would have asked her to bring something else because that would not have been her issue. Her issue was the thing that controlled her. And every single one of us has something that controls us, don't we? That without the power of God in our lives would rule us and we would be submitted to it hopelessly with no hope of eternal life. And so Jesus is saying, I want to give you freedom. I want to set you free. I want to give you eternal life and living water. But before I can do that, you must be willing to give to me whatever it is that controls you in your life. Now that was my experience. As we were praying that year, and we reached second semester, and God still had not given His answer to this call, right? Whatever it meant. I came to the place where I had to make a choice. I was two uh, years through my, my doctoral program in uh, music, and um, I had to let the university know if I was going to come back as a teaching assistant. Uh, so I was teaching undergrads, music theory, and ear training, and things like this. And in return, they give you free tuition, which is, you know, the only way I could afford to be doing this. And so we reached March, and I had a choice to make. Am I going to hang on to this dream, which I have set for myself? Or am I going to make myself available to whatever God's answer might be? I had to pray a lot about that. But I eventually told the university I'm not going to reapply for that assistantship, which in my mind meant so much for this dream, right? So I told them that, and we continued praying. And I think I shared this part of the story as well. We were now in early April, and my wife had to let her school know by May 1st if she was coming back to teach or not. Now we are praying a very specific prayer. And I can't tell you that it's always God's will that we pray specific dates, but I do believe that it is God's will that we pray specifically. If we're not praying specific prayers, how do we know when God gives a specific answer? Right? So I do want to challenge you this morning, whatever the issues may be and challenges in your life or in your family right now, pray specific prayers based on promises of God. This frees him up to answer in a way that we will recognize he is answering. And then we can give him the glory. It was April 28 or 29. And we were praying yet again. This is now like eight months into this experience. And my wife and I are praying there in our living room and the phone rings. It's a friend of ours working at another boarding academy. And he said, hey, Tim, would you like to come teach 
Academy Music once again. Now remember, my goal had been to never do that again. I'm going to get my doctorate, work at a college or university. And my first response was, absolutely not, but thanks for calling. But when you've been praying for eight months and praying a specific prayer, Lord, we need to know by this date. And then an answer comes just in time. We couldn't ignore it. So for about a week, I said, give me a few days. And for a week, I went and yelled at God. And he patiently listened to me. And then we said, yes, we'll do that. And you know, that experience was uh, a tremendous blessing in our lives in many, many ways. I learned an important lesson through this experience too, and that is the simple lesson of obedience. It's a lesson we all have to learn, right? Letting go, letting God take control. Jesus wants to set us all free, but we have to be willing to let go. And that thing that we have to let go is different for each one of us. But the root issue is the same. So Jesus calls the woman, or he says to the woman, bring your husband, bring to me the thing that controls you. She tries to change the subject. Oh, I see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you know, you worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And then he says in verse 23, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Our first verse this morning, John 8, verse 32. Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. Jesus wants us to be free in Him. But in order to be free, we must be willing to let go. Verse 25, the woman said unto him, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto you am he. You know, Jesus didn't tell many people that directly that he was the Messiah. Because there were not that many people who were ready to hear it. There were not that many people who were willing to completely surrender their life to Him. But this woman was willing. She was ready. And to the extent that we are willing to let go and let God take control, to that extent, He can work in our lives. I'll tell you another testimony that our family has of God's leading. Uh, we had moved with Stacy's uh, parents to Missouri. This was about 10 years ago, after my time teaching at that second academy. We had found a place in the country. We had been praying for a long time. Lord, we want to live in the country. And so we finally found a place in Missouri, a little bit outside of Kansas City. And we had moved there. 
And Stacy and I uh, built our house in the country. And um, in early 2019, which was just a couple of years after we finally finished the house, we both became convicted that we should put it up for sale. Now we had several reasons for doing this. One of mine was that the ministry that we had started, Pathway to Paradise Ministries, uh, started in a room in the basement. And we were running out of room in that room in the basement. And um, <clears throat> my thought process was, if we can sell our house and downsize a little bit, that would give us a little bit of cash to put toward the ministry, and maybe I can put up a little pole building or something like that on a corner of the property. And so, uh, with a lot of prayer, we, we finally decided to list our newly built house for six months, 180 days. And we told the realtor exactly what we were doing and why. And she kind of looked at us cross-eyed like, okay. <laughs> but she, she went along with it. She was actually the one that had sold us the property when we bought it a few years before. She probably thought, what are these people up to? The only offer we got on our house came on day 180, very last day. And it was for the exact amount that I had been praying for for a minimum that we could accept. So I immediately thought I should have been praying for a higher minimum. No. Clearly, we were moving somewhere, right? The Lord is leading, but where? Now, at the same time we had listed our house, Stacy's uh, parents had said, well, if you're going to move, we're not staying here without our grandkids. So they had listed their place as well. And in the 30 days that it took our house to close, her parents got an offer on their place. Now, this was in uh, September, October, so fall of 2019. Winter is coming soon, and we have no idea where we are all going. So we started looking literally across the country, from Idaho all the way out to the East Coast. And it's now getting cold, and <clears throat> we have to get out of our houses. Where are we going? Well, the Lord provided the, the folks that had bought her parents' place were actually moving their business from California out to Missouri. And they literally had semi-truckloads of equipment to move out. And so they said, you know, we can't stay here yet because we're still in California. Would you mind staying in the house that we just bought for a few months over winter to keep an eye on our things? And we said, well, okay, we'll do that. We finally decided that we needed to focus our search and stay in Missouri. And it was uh, right around the turn of the year here, so uh, just you know, right at the beginning of 2020, we found the house that we now live in in Missouri, just a couple hours from where we had been, a little bit further down in the Ozark Mountains. And um, we closed on our house in late February of 2024, just a few weeks before the world or the United States went nuts with COVID. Now here's the miraculous part of the story. About two weeks after we closed on our house, a for sale sign went up in front of an Adventist church 15 minutes from our house. The um, you know, little country church, you know the story. People had moved away, died off, gotten old, and uh, they were down to four or five people and it just wasn't working anymore. So that church had closed a few months before we actually moved there, but the for sale sign went up right after we got in the area. And we walked through the church, looking at it, could possibly this be 
you know, a place where our ministry could land. My first reaction was, no, there's too much work that needs to be done. Termite damage, water damage, you name it. It was, it was in, in bad shape. But we prayed about it, and to make a long story short, the Lord brought enough money, donations, to purchase the church, and then a lot more money to completely remodel it. So rather than a little pole barn, we now have a nice little country church to operate from. We've built recording studios in the basement, completely remodeled. The only thing that remains is red, the bright red pews. However they made those back in the late 70s, it was good material because uh, those pews are still very comfortable. And um, praise the Lord, we've been able to reopen the church for services as well. And so we have a group meeting there each week, small but faithful group. Um, part of the Iowa-Missouri Conference. So we look back and we see the Lord knew exactly what He's doing. His timing was exactly right as well. But we had to be willing to let go, right? That new house we had just built. How many husbands had the woman had? And the man she was with now was not even her husband. So that's six men. Six things that had controlled her in her life. And now whom is she standing in front of? She's standing in front of husband number seven. The perfect man. She finally finds Mr. Wright. And this is a relationship that fuels her and feeds her for the rest of her life and protects her. And she becomes one of the greatest evangelists that we have recorded in the Gospels, doesn't she? She runs back to town and the entire city comes back to Jesus. You know, this is how Jesus wants to use each one of us. If He can get us to let go so that He can set us free in Him. He has an entire mission field for each one of you, for each family here and certainly for each church represented. He has an entire mission field, and he says the harvest is ready, right? He just needs the workers who are willing to let go. Now, I'm not saying this morning, go and put up your house for sale. But we each have a test in our lives, don't we? We each have something, whether it's that dream or something physical like the house or the things or whatever it may be. You know, we often think of those things that we have to surrender and let go as all the bad things, the bad habits. Sometimes it can be good things that we have to be willing to let go of. And sometimes God may, may take those things from us. Sometimes He may give them back. You know, the Lord was good to me. After I said, yes, I'll go teach Academy Music again, He said, okay, and I'll give you the doctoral degree. And that conference actually helped me finish the degree. I think the Lord was smiling. He said, you can finish it. You're not going to need it. <laughs> I have other plans for you. Sometimes God gives things back. You know, it's up to Him. We need to trust Him. Whatever He knows is best for each one of us in our lives. So I want to give you that encouragement and that challenge this morning. Wherever you are in your walk with God right now, I do know this. There is always the next thing, the next test. The next thing that God is saying, are you willing to trust me with this? 
And I encourage you and I challenge you to say yes and to trust. Even if you can't see what it might mean for you if you say yes, I can promise you this, that God's plan for you is far greater than your plan is for yourself. And the mission field that He has for you is far richer than the one that you may think you have. If you're willing this morning to say, God, I'm willing to say yes. I might be struggling with it, okay? But I'm willing to say yes. Whatever that might mean in my life. If that's your desire to say that, would you stand where we're at right now as we say yes to God? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You had a divine appointment for Your Son that day as He walked through Samaria. And we know that You have a divine appointment for each one of us. Before You come back, You must pass through our lives. And the question is always the same, even though it may look different for each one of us. Are You willing to let go so that You can grab hold of me? Father, we have stood here together this morning in an effort to show you that we are willing to say yes. So I ask that you would be with each person here, each family represented, and enable us and strengthen us to say yes to you so that you can use us and fill us and give us that everlasting water to share with others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.